Welcome to the fourth episode of the Scleroderma Education Podcast. Created by the Scleroderma Association of BC, this podcast aims to increase awareness and provide education for medical students and curious patients. Through this series, we hope to help our listeners gain a holistic understanding of scleroderma by learning from both patients and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Valerie Doyon. I'm a third-year UBC medical student and board member on the Scleroderma Association of BC. It is now my pleasure to introduce our two guests for this episode. Dr. Chris Ryerson is a respirologist with a special interest in interstitial lung disease. He is the director of the ILD clinic at the St. Paul's Hospital, and he has published research in systemic sclerosis-associated interstitial lung disease. Jen Beckett is a patient living with diffuse systemic sclerosis and interstitial lung disease. She volunteers her time as the Scleroderma Association of BC rep for Kamloops. Welcome both. Thank you. Thank you. So scleroderma is a complex multi-organ connective tissue disease affecting both skin and organs with various degrees of severity. On this episode, we'll focus on the lung involvement in systemic sclerosis, particularly talking about ILD. So Dr. Ryerson, could you start us off by providing a basic explanation of ILD and scleroderma? Sure. Uh, So interstitial lung disease is a big umbrella term. So when we talk about interstitial lung disease or ILD for short, we're talking about literally about 200 different subtypes of interstitial lung disease. Uh, Also synonymous often with pulmonary fibrosis, you might hear those terms used interchangeably. So interstitial lung disease, essentially the way I think of it is that you have the lungs uh, are fed essentially by airways. Those airways then terminate in alveoli. And in the alveoli is where gas exchange happens, where gas diffuses into the capillaries. Uh, so you have the airways, the alveoli, and then the capillaries, the blood vessels in the lungs. And then holding all of that together is the interstitium, which is like the framework or the scaffolding of the lungs. The interstitium is supposed to be really lace-like, really fine uh, and thin, uh, so that gas exchange can happen across that layer uh, with really no, no barrier. In interstitial lung disease, you have a disease of that interstitium, so of that scaffolding that holds everything together. And what that does is two things. It impairs gas exchange across that that membrane, that thin membrane, uh, and it also causes some restriction. uh, So some fibrosis that essentially makes it harder for you to take a deep breath and expand your lungs completely. So because of those two things, uh, we end up having um, loss of, of oxygen in the, in the blood or less ability to absorb oxygen in the blood. And we also have shortness of breath uh, resulting from that loss of, of oxygen or lack of oxygen and an inability to take a deep breath. So in scleroderma or systemic sclerosis, uh, the type of interstitial lung disease that we see is secondary to that autoimmune process. So in scleroderma, there's autoantibodies that are, are brought on for, for we don't really know what reason quite yet. Uh, but those autoantibodies attack different parts of the body, including the interstitium. And what that does is, is cause that, that barrier to oxygen absorption and that, that scarring. Uh, when we talk about interstitial lung disease in scleroderma, there are a few different patterns uh, that this can take. Uh, generally, they involve some combination of scarring or fibrosis uh, and some amount of inflammation. Uh, how people do over time, uh, what types of treatments we use, Uh, really depends on how much scarring there is versus how much inflammation there is. So I think that's a a brief summary from a high-level perspective. Right. So it's really the autoimmune process with all the antibodies that's driving that collagen deposition, I assume, in the lung. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. 
And Jen has a diffuse subcutaneous subtype of systemic sclerosis. So Jen, I was hoping you could walk us through how quickly your symptoms progressed once you were diagnosed. Sure. In the spring of 2015, just sort of backing up a little bit, I, um, I had a cervical spine surgery. And six months into my recovery, I was starting to become a lot more active. And I was out hiking in on a winter day. And I noticed that I had uh, a fairly bad episode of what I thought was primary Raynaud's and um, came home and woke up in the middle of the night with really throbbing hands and swollen hands and sort of assumed that maybe I had frostbite um, from the hike. Within weeks after that noticing, I, um, I started progressing quite quickly in my scleroderma symptoms. My skin sort of went from being uh, puffy to, and swollen to hard, and my rotten skin scores quickly elevated to 48. So my progression was, was really um, aggressive in the, in the beginning. I had uh, shortness of breath, increased fatigue, doing daily activities, going up and down stairs. I developed GI issues and uh, started losing weight quite rapidly, up to 35 pounds in my first couple of years. And um, I began to have um, digital ulcers, a lot of pain in my joints and muscles. And just uh, a, a very um, limited range of motion to in my hands and my whole body. And doing basic tasks around the house became really difficult because of the high levels of fatigue <clears throat> at the time and shortness of breath. And it, shortly after meeting with my respirologist in Kamloops, he went through, or sorry, my rheumatologist, he went through all the clinical symptoms and we did a lung CT and found out that we, I had two large nodules and a lot of ground glass density. And it was at that point that he diagnosed me with diffuse scleroderma and referred me to St. Paul's Hospital to see the respirologist and rheumatologist. So it sounds like things were great. And then all of a sudden, within a month to a year, you had all sorts of issues with multi-organ involvement. Is that right? Yeah. And I just wanted to mention too, that um, not only was my skin um, getting tighter, but I was also, my pigment was changing. I was getting a lot of dark uh, tones with uh, a bit of morphia on my arms and losing I also started to lose my hair too. The collagen was crowding out my hair follicles. And so, and it, everything, like I say, it just happened the first three years, everything happened all at once. So it was really progressive. That must've been really scary. What was that like going through that? Well, it was, it was really scary. I just didn't, I just had no idea. I was recovering from the surgery and originally I had thought, you know, this may be some nerve damage from the surgery and, you know, and uh, I just remember hearing the diagnosis of scleroderma and thinking, well, there's got to be a logical treatment plan for this. <laughs> it's an autoimmune disease. I had never heard of it before. And um, yeah, it was, it was a really, it was a tough few years for sure. Yeah, that sounds awful. I'd just like to switch kind of back to Dr. Ryerson now. And so 
Pulmonary hypertension is another common lung condition that we see in systemic sclerosis. So could you explain how clinically we can differentiate ILD from pulmonary hypertension? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, from a lung perspective, really, those are the two main manifestations. So ILD and pulmonary hypertension or pH for short. Uh, They're both common enough that we routinely screen for both of them. Uh, And the reason that we screen is that the symptoms are relatively nonspecific. Uh, when you're talking about a lung condition, the lungs are, are kind of simple in a way. Um, they don't serve too many different purposes. And really, it's gas exchange that's the main thing. Uh, and when you have a poor gas exchange, you end up being short of breath. So for both pulmonary hypertension and interstitial lung disease, you have a gas exchange problem. One more of the interstitium, one more of the pulmonary vessels. Uh, but in the end, it's shortness of breath that's the main symptom of each. Uh, with that, it's much more prominent with exertion. So exertional shortness of breath or, or walking shortness of breath is much more common and earlier uh, than we see it at rest. Beyond that, um, with interstitial lung disease, it's often that patients will get a cough. It's classically a dry cough, so without sputum, uh, but can be productive as well. And then with pulmonary hypertension, the main other symptom that people can get is lower extremity swelling. Uh, so uh, peripheral edema is what we call that. Um, and that's because of the, the right side of the heart backing up a little bit. Other than that, uh, you can have associated fatigue um, in extreme cases of severe disease. You can have um, dizziness and lightheadedness and things like that, but those are less common. Um, other things like chest pain and palpitations, we don't really see with either of those conditions. That really suggests that there's something else going on. So really it's shortness of breath and then cough, for interstitial lung disease, peripheral edema, uh, for pulmonary hypertension. Can we clinically predict which scleroderma patients are most likely to develop lung disease? Yeah, so the prediction for ILD versus pulmonary hypertension is is different. So there are different things that can predispose to one versus the other. Uh, And there's no real hard and fast rule. So uh, as I mentioned, we have to screen for these these involvements. Uh, we, We can't just make a, an estimation based on risk factors. We have to actively screen for them even when we're not really suspecting them. From an interstitial lung disease perspective, the main things that predispose to, to having that in patients with scleroderma would be diffuse involvement. So diffuse involvement of the skin uh, is a predictor for having interstitial lung disease. And then there's some autoantibodies that predict that as well, and specifically SCL70 antibodies, which we measure in the blood. Uh, so those would be the two main risk factors for ILD and scleroderma. And really it's in, in a way the opposite that predicts a uh, greater likelihood of pulmonary hypertension. So more limited uh, cutaneous disease or limited skin disease uh, and the presence of um, not having SCL70 antibodies or instead having anti-centromere antibodies. But again, neither of those is a hard rule. So we do see a fair bit of overlap for both. Uh, and so we do have to actively screen. So when evaluating a scleroderma patient for potential lung involvement, um, what are the key questions on history that you would ask? So really it's shortness of breath. Uh, What type of activity you're able to do before you get shorter breath? Uh, So if if you're healthy, you you get shorter breath. If you're out hiking a mountain, that's that's normal. So it's really a matter of of what you're able to do that's that's different from what you should be able to do at your age. Um, So it's really exertional shortness of breath and then cough, whether it's productive or not, um, swelling in the legs. Um, and then uh, other things like fatigue and 
um, just generally feeling feeling unwell. Um, those are symptoms that we ask as well, but it's really shortness of breath, cough, peripheral edema. Okay, thanks. So then on the physical exam, what are your key findings? So they're very different for interstitial lung disease versus pulmonary hypertension. Interstitial lung disease is pretty straightforward. Uh, so related to that, that scarring in the lungs, the inability to take a deep breath, we can sometimes actually see that. So if you think about somebody's chest and normally you take a breath in and your chest expands and then it contracts and then expands. If you have severe interstitial lung disease, you actually noticeably don't expand your, your chest as much as you should when you take a deep breath. Uh, the second main thing that we see or that we hear are crackles when we listen with a stethoscope. Uh, so usually that's at the back and at the bottom of the chest that we can hear crackles. And essentially what that represents when you have scarring, uh, when you take a, a breath in, you have uh, scarred or, or compressed lung um, from that scarring that then pops open. And it sort of sounds like uh, Rice Krispies when you put milk into, into the bowl or Velcro uh, when you're tearing Velcro apart. Um, so those are, are the types of sounds that we, we hear in the lungs uh, with patients who have interstitial lung disease. From a pulmonary hypertension perspective, uh, most of the things that we, we see are related to the heart and how the right side of the heart is functioning. So we can see peripheral edema that's swelling in the lower extremities. Uh, you can look at a vein in the neck um, to see if the heart is kind of backing up a little bit. That's a subtle finding, but an important one when it's there. And then we can also listen uh, to the heart, so the front of the chest, and we can hear signs that the, the right side of the heart is not, not very happy. Uh, there are a couple of specific heart sounds that we listen to uh, with regard to that. So those would be the main three things, the legs, the neck, and the heart. Okay. So for my medical student colleagues, the JVP, and can you specifically mention which heart sounds we listen yeah, to? Yeah, so it would be a loud P2. Uh, mm -hmm. That would be the most common one. Uh, you can also hear a tricuspid regurgitant murmur, um, but loud P2 would be the first thing usually that you hear. Okay. And as a respirologist, are you just kind of eyeballing how much they can expand their lungs or are you doing like the, the diaphragmatic yeah. excursion and all that stuff? I uh, don't do excursion. Uh, so yeah, it's a general eyeball. Uh, when I see patients, uh, I've already seen their CT scan uh, and the CT scan doesn't really lie. Right. Okay. That's helpful to know what truly happens in real life versus the academics. Okay. <laughs> and turning it back to Jen now, I was hoping that you could fully describe what are your symptoms from ILD and how much does it impact your life? I, I would say um, prior to scleroderma, being a, a really active person and a runner, I, my, the biggest noticings that I've had are, I just can't, I can't run and I can't do the things that I used to do um, without exertion and shortness of breath. Um, in saying that, you know, I'm, I, I do remain very active and I'm out hiking six days a week up to 10 kilometers. And as long as I'm on a flat terrain with a uh, little incline, I can maintain, you know, a fairly good pace without being short of breath. But anytime I get to a hill or um, any inclines, I really notice that not only do I feel short of breath, but I, I sort of feel um, like there's a weight on my chest. I'm, I feel blocked almost like um, if that, if that were a helpful way to describe it. And I, I just noticed I don't, I don't have a cough. Um, 
So, you know, that that's been great in terms of being able to to stay active. Um, but I do notice that I have a lot more fatigue after activities. I really have to do plan my day differently than I used to to adapt and accommodate to my new normals. Right. I'm still very impressed that you're getting out there six days a week. That's incredible. That's more physical activity than I do for sure. But yeah, I understand that it's, you know, you're no longer able to run and you can't really do any hiking anymore. You just can't tolerate. Sometimes patients describe to me a sort of a sensation of air hunger, as we would call it. It's just a very uncomfortable sensation that they just can't get enough air into their lungs. I don't know if you have that. Yeah, that that's, I think that's a good way to describe it. It just feels like you take a breath in and instead of it fully going down into the bottom of your lungs, it just kind of, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't allow for that. So, you know, obviously you, um, you just can't get enough oxygen. Right. Right. Turning it back to Dr. Ryerson now in patients with a new systemic scleroderma diagnosis, what are the initial investigations in terms of lung involvement? So coming back a little bit to what Jen just said, one of the the most helpful things is actually to establish that baseline exercise capacity. So in somebody like Jen, who's who's very active out there doing 10 kilometer hikes and and things like that, um, seeing a change from that is actually usually more helpful. And we see that earlier than we pick things up through investigation. So establishing that baseline is really important. And, and I document how far people can walk on flat ground, or if they can do something more intense, um, exactly what it is that they're doing, how long it takes them to do that 10k hike, things like that. So from a lung disease perspective, there are four main investigations that we think about. Uh, and in, in no particular order, those are pulmonary function tests, six minute walk tests, echocardiograms, and then high resolution CT scans of the chest. Uh, For pulmonary function tests or PFTs, uh, there are three main components of those. There's spirometry, uh, which measures flow rates, uh, airflow in and out of the lungs, plethysmography, which measures lung volumes, and then diffusion, which is the DLCO test. Uh, Those are are tests that really should be done, I think, at the baseline of any new diagnosis of of systemic sclerosis um, as a screen and to establish a baseline for future comparison. Uh, it's pretty common for us to see a low DLCO before there are any symptoms, because uh, most people are not exercising to an intensity that uh, would really be limited by that, that borderline reduced DLCO. We sometimes also see a DLCO that's lower uh, than normal, even without any other overt manifestations on CT scan or echocardiogram. So it's, it's helpful to establish that baseline for future comparison. Um, in patients that have abnormalities, typically uh, pulmonary function tests are done every six to 12 months for monitoring purposes, at least for the first two or three years. If things stay stable throughout all that, then we often back off a little bit and we might do those annually or every couple of years. Uh, in terms of the six minute walk test, uh, that's something that's more helpful in patients who have more significant involvement. So I don't necessarily do that at the very beginning uh, when we're first assessing a patient, but once the DLCO gets below 60% or so, that ends up being a more helpful test. And really the point of that one is to um, quantify their exercise capacity, but also to identify uh, the presence of hypoxemia or low oxygen levels in the blood that might warrant supplemental oxygen with exertion. Uh, so again, we do that usually every six months or so in people who have more significant lung involvement, either ILD or pH. 
Um, echocardiogram is something that we do at baseline as well. And we do that typically once a year. Uh, and you do that essentially for the entirety of, of their, their disease. Um, so it's a lifelong annual test. And that's really to screen for pulmonary hypertension. And that can pick up early pulmonary hypertension. And the, the benefit of that is that there are some really good treatments for pH uh, that are dealt with by, by other physicians than myself. Um, and so identifying that early uh, can have a significant impact on management. And then the last thing that we do is a high resolution CT scan or computed tomography of the chest. And that's the test really to screen for interstitial lung disease. Um, whether you do that at baseline, um, I would say most people would do that at baseline. Um, if it's normal, you probably don't do it again unless there's some change in symptoms or PFTs. Um, if it's abnormal, we usually will do it every two or three years uh, to monitor progression or to monitor for any other complications that come up, like nodules that might need to be biopsied and um, opportunistic infections and things like that that sometimes can come up uh, related to treatments that people are on. So again, those would be the four tests. Usually all four are done at baseline, and then how often we do them in follow-up depends a little bit on what we see at that baseline test. Okay. And can you just explain a little bit further for some of the audience that may not be familiar with the DLCO, what, what that entails? And it, that's, is that part of the standard pulmonary function test? Yeah. So those three parts of the PFT that I mentioned, spirometry, plethysmography, and DLCO. Um, so spirometry is something that can be done really in any uh, GP's office. It's a very common test. That's the one where you basically just take a, a spirometer, uh, which is essentially like a tube, you blow on it and it measures the airflow. Um, so it's a simple, simple maneuver. Um, the plethysmography and DLCO, those are tests that have to be done in what's called a body box, uh, which is this telephone booth-like apparatus that's completely sealed. Um, you sit in there and you do some, some breathing maneuvers um, and, uh, and spits out details about lung volumes at different points of the respiratory cycle. Uh, and then there's also a component of that that is the DLCO where you breathe in a small amount of carbon monoxide and we see how good the lungs are at absorbing that carbon monoxide. That's what the CO stands for in the DLCO. So it's diffusion in the lungs of carbon monoxide, essentially. And carbon monoxide diffuses easily. So it's a surrogate that we use for oxygen diffusion. So it tells us how good the lungs are at taking up oxygen, essentially. Okay. And so you look at all of those values, you know, from the CT to the PFTs and gain a holistic understanding of where their lung function is at. And then you trend that over time. Yeah, exactly. If we see a change in those numbers, especially the pulmonary function test, because it spits out absolute numbers as a percent of what would be predicted. Um, it's really easy to follow those over time. And if we see a change of more than three, four or 5% in those numbers, then we start to, to get a little bit worried about there being progression. Okay. And Jen, has your screening been similar to what Dr. Ryerson has been describing? Yes, actually in the first, um, the first three years of my diagnosis, I was having pulmonary function tests done every three months at St. Paul's and visiting with the respirologist and rheumatologist. And we, we monitored um, the, the DLCO for me in the beginning of the diagnosis was up in the high 70s. And um, within a year, um, it had sort of dropped into the mid 50s. So we were, we were doing more frequent um, pulmonary function tests and a yearly echocardiogram as well as a um, CT scan. And 
you know, over the last couple of years, my lungs have stabilized, bringing my DLCO back up into the, to the mid-60s. And so now we do pulmonary function tests um, and meet with the respirologist twice a year. And Jen's initial experience of, of PFTs every three months, that's because I think we were probably worried about how you were doing in that first year uh, because things were, were so intense. Uh, so that's not a, that's not the standard. Uh, that's a little bit more, um, more observation, more investigation than what the usual would be, uh, but for good reason in your case. And Jen, I was hoping that you could share some non-pharmacological management tips for ILD for fellow patients that are living with the condition. Sure. Um, I, I think always, you know, consulting with your doctor first before you do any, anything different, but I, I always would, you know, advise like exercising as much as you can, you know, I mean, I think it, it has um, good physiological benefits for your lungs and circulatory system, as well as helping to produce some endorphins to help manage, you know, the, some pain in living with scleroderma. And I, I think it's great just to get out of your scleroderma head for a while and enjoy nature and, and do some of the things that you love to do. Other, other things that have been helpful for me are um, massage therapy uh, once a month, just to help kind of loosen the muscles around the rib cage and, you know, open up my uh, chest a little bit to help breathe easier. I also find that uh, um, hot Epsom salt baths are great just to kind of loosen up um, my lungs in the morning to, to help me have a better quality of day. And, you know, just being really careful around um, making sure you're taking your proton and pump inhibitors and not eating three hours before you go to sleep to avoid acid reflux back into the lungs and elevating your head and just really honoring, I think, your, your new normal in terms of your fatigue and what you can manage and, um, you know, just being, just being okay with um, if on the days that you're not able to do some of the things that you wanted to do to, um, to just kind of take a breather and honor your, how you're feeling. Thank you. That's, I'm sure that's going to be really helpful for other patients. Dr. Ryerson, did you have anything else to add? Uh, from a non-pharmacologic perspective, yeah. I think, um, I would, I would echo what Jen said about talk to your doctor uh, about any alternative medications that you're taking in particular. Um, I have seen uh, some patients on occasion who are getting advice to take medications that are actually counterproductive to what I'm trying to do. Uh, so they're taking immune boosters while I'm giving immune suppressants um, as an example. Um, so just be, be cautious about that. Um, at least share what you're doing with your physician and there's, there's not judgments about those kinds of things. So it's, it should be an open dialogue um, if, if you are taking something extra. Um, the other things that Jen mentioned, exercise, you can't say enough about exercise. Um, so I, I think that's really important to emphasize as well. Uh, and then I'd, I'd touch on, um, some people don't think of it as, as a medication, but oxygen um, and vaccines are two other things to think about as well that uh, are sometimes considered medications and sometimes not. And also stopping smoking if the, if the patient is a smoker. Yep. Yep. So next, Dr. Ryerson, can you touch upon some medical management or pharmacological management for ILD? Yep. 
So the um, the underlying principle of of ILD management is there. There are two reasons to use medications. Essentially, one is to reverse damage that's already there, and one is to prevent further progression. So. Reversing damage that's already there, if there's a lot of inflammation um, present on the CT scan or on a biopsy, if, if you're a, a rare patient that has a biopsy, um, if there's a lot of that inflammation, then we can actually reverse some of that damage. Uh, and so in that situation, we actually use fairly aggressive therapy and that's immune suppressive therapy um, to try to get that inflammation under control and kind of raise that baseline. And that sounds like what Jen experienced early on in, in her disease where there was rapid progression and probably a lot of inflammation and then some early aggressive medication got things under control. The types of medications that do that are prednisone, which is definitely a double-edged sword in scleroderma. Um, so prednisone can also predispose to other complications. So we use it very uh, hesitatingly in scleroderma, but sometimes has a role. Um, other medications that work quickly um, would be rituximab and cyclophosphamide. We don't use very much cyclophosphamide anymore just because it's, it's quite a bit more toxic. Um, but rituximab uh, and more new, newly uh, tocilizumab uh, work relatively quickly and can help get that inflammation under control quite quickly. Um, cyclophosphamide is an intravenous medication uh, usually that we use once a month for six to 12 months, but there is a lot of toxicity. Uh, rituximab is, is a biologic medication that... Um, usually we infuse every six months or so intravenously. And then tocilizumab um, is a, a more intermittent medication used every couple of weeks. Um, it's only been around for the last few years. So those ones are, are medications that help um, reverse some of that initial inflammation if there is a lot of inflammation that's present. In the longer term, you can use those same medications to keep things at bay. Um, but more often in the longer term, we use something that's a little bit less potent um, as our first option, and that would be mycophenolate. Um, as our first choice. So that's probably what we use 80 to 90% of the time as our first choice medication in scleroderma associated ILD. Uh, mycophenolate is an immune suppressant. Uh, and so it decreases the amount of inflammation, um, but not quite as aggressively or as quickly as the other medications that are a bit more potent, um, but it provides a better balance between side effects and benefit. Um, for mycophenolate, we started a low dose work our way up um, and really we target a fairly high dose in scleroderma, but again, it's not that potent to medication. So people are usually able to tolerate that high dose. Uh, our second option would be azathioprine, uh, which is essentially an older cousin of mycophenolate in some ways, um, but it has more side effects. So we generally stick with mycophenolate to start. Um, in the last couple of years, there has been more development and, and trials showing that there are some antifibrotic medications that can also help. So you can think of it as there's this upstream autoimmune disease that causes inflammation. Um, we use those immune suppressant medications that I just mentioned to target that inflammatory component. Uh, for whatever inflammation that's still present, that then can lead to fibrosis in the lungs and, and elsewhere in the body as well. And specifically for pulmonary fibrosis, there are antifibrotic medications that can target the specific fibrotic pathways that are more the downstream pathways. And there's reasonable evidence now that nintetinib, um, which also goes by the name OFEV, um, and then a little bit less uh, strong evidence that perfenadone uh, can decrease the amount of, of fibrosis formation in the lungs uh, in patients with scleroderma and other types of autoimmune conditions. Um, so those are things that 
Uh, we would like to use uh, in patients that have progressive fibrosis despite the initial immunosuppressive medication. Challenge right now is that those medications aren't funded for scleroderma in British Columbia, although we hope that that will change in the next several months or, or year or two. Great. Okay. So there's some hope for some new therapies and options coming down the pipeline yeah. across our fingers. Jen, can you tell us about your experience with medications that you're taking? Sure. Um, in, in the initial diagnosis uh, of scleroderma, I was uh, on methyltrexate. Um, and then as soon as we found out uh, about the lung involvement, we stopped doing the methyltrexate. And I, was, I went on to high doses of mycophenolate. Um, I had a tough time tolerating the mycophenolate just because I had some GI issues as well. And um, they, I wasn't noticing a big change in my pulmonary function tests as well. So we uh, talked a little bit about stem cell transplant at that time. And uh, my, my rheumatologist and respirologist decided that we would try um, adding low do lower doses of mycophenolate in adjunct to rituximab infusions biannually. So I've been doing that. That's been my treatment plan for the last uh, almost three years now. And it's the rituximab has really helped me. It's helped to stabilize my lungs and just to e even help with my, my skin condition as well. But that the rituximab has been by far for me personally, um, the most successful treatment. And I, I'm happy to say that, you know, the last couple of years, my DLCOs have remained stable, my pulmonary function tests um, have been uh, fairly consistent. And my six minute walk test, I'm, I'm managing to stay in the top 100% of my age category in terms of my numbers there. So I think it's, it's, it's been a great treatment plan for me. That's awesome to hear. I'm so happy. So you're able to stabilize your condition, but I was hoping that you could speak to the wider spectrum of disease in the Scleroderma Association of BC patients that we have. Sure. Yeah. In my experience in the last six years, you know, in living with scleroderma and meeting other people, um, I would say the conversations that I've had um, are, that are, are fairly common are that we're also different with in, this interstitial lung disease. And we often talk about our scleroderma, you know, anti, auto autoantibodies um, that comes up in conversations and and sort of how it predetermines the course of the disease. So we see a lot of people that I meet, you know, we, I've seen some people that have progressed rapidly in the first year and are on oxygen. And also people like myself, that it's more of a slow, um, gradual pro uh, progress um, with the lung involvement. And, you know, some people are, are more rapid and requiring oxygen therapy earlier on or um, later on. And, you know, oftentimes we'll are, talk about um, stem cell transplants and have either been waiting for lung transplant or have had lung transplant and successfully are doing well. So that's sort of the common 
um, I'd say the common conversations that I've had amongst the scleroderma community about some of the things that they experience with interstitial lung disease. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ryerson, could you speak to stem cell transplants as well as lung transplants for scleroderma? Yeah, so uh, they're very different things. So stem cell transplant and lung transplant, even though they both say transplant, they're very different. So stem cell transplants essentially are taking out, um, essentially wiping out your immune system and replacing it with a different immune system. Um, there are two different types of that. You can either uh, wipe out your own immune system and replace it with uh, a tuned up version of your own immune system. That's called a, an autogenic stem cell transplant. Um, more commonly, uh, we do things that are called allogenic stem cell transplants, uh, where you wipe out your immune system and replace it with a donor's immune system. Um, so you get a bone marrow uh, biopsy or a bone marrow transplant essentially um, from somebody else. Um, we don't do those in BC. Um, you end up going to Calgary to have those done. Uh, it's not done very often. There's a very narrow uh, criteria uh, to have those done. Uh, and we've, we've only sent, um, not sure, maybe 10 patients or so uh, to Calgary to have that done over the last several years. So it's, it's an uncommon treatment. Uh, lung transplant is also an uncommon treatment, um, largely because um, we're often able to have patients stabilize um, for uh, many, many years. Um, the other reason is that if we fix the lungs, but there are problems elsewhere, then we're not really helping the patient. We're just putting them through a really major surgery um, with, without really helping fix the, the whole patient. So lung transplants can be helpful for patients who have severe lung disease, um, but they have to have relatively stable disease and relatively mild disease elsewhere in the body. And we do those in Vancouver. Uh, we're, we're one of the bigger transplant centers in the world, really. Um, and we do um, transplants for patients with systemic sclerosis, but it's relatively uncommon that we end up doing so. And so if you have a lung transplant, um, will eventually the autoimmune disease that's still ongoing, will it start attacking the new lungs? Uh, it's a good question. We don't really know, um, but there have not been, as far as I'm aware, there have not been cases of that happening with systemic sclerosis coming back in the transplanted lungs. Uh, unfortunately, after lung transplant, the median survival is only about six years, maybe as high as, as nine years in some uh, underlying diseases. Um, so we, we don't have decades to follow patients often to see if something really slowly progressive comes back. But uh, essentially that's not a consideration. We don't worry about um, scleroderma coming back in the lungs of transplanted patients. Right. Okay. And could you touch upon how COVID has affected things? So what if a ILD scleroderma patient gets COVID? Yeah. Uh, so uh, if, if patients with interstitial lung disease get COVID, there are a couple studies out there that show early on, um, so with earlier variants of COVID, as high as a 20% mortality rate, um, sometimes even higher than that um, for COVID. And that compares to probably around a 1% mortality rates in the, in the general population for the earlier strains of COVID. So we're looking at a really um, dramatically increased risk of mortality uh, for patients with pulmonary fibrosis or with ILD compared to those who don't have ILD. Um, there are um, treatments that have been used and developed since those early studies. Uh, so there are things like citrovimab and, and other uh, antivirals um, 
we, we use things like uh, tocilizumab, um, dexamethasone um, in patients who are quite sick. So there are treatments that we use that probably decrease the, the mortality associated with COVID and ILD, um, but still there's a higher risk of, of those things. So if you have um, scleroderma or if you have pulmonary fibrosis of any cause, you would probably be um, considered one of those clinically exceptionally vulnerable patients who would be a candidate for some of those early interventions. So that's the first thing is if you do get COVID, um, take a look at the criteria which are online at the BC CDC website to see if you qualify for some of those early treatments and, and consider getting those early treatments to, to prevent severe disease. Um, if you do have any concerns, it's it's very worthwhile to go to an emergency room, make sure your oxygenation is appropriate and, and get inpatient care, um, oxygen supplementation if you do need it. Uh, because of the high uh, risk of complications in all patients with pulmonary fibrosis, vaccination is really important. Um, and we, we do know that the vaccines are, are really effective. Um, they're they were really effective in the earlier strains. They're probably a little bit less effective with the Omicron strains, the BA1 and the BA2 strains that are prevalent right now. Um, but they still are helpful in preventing severe disease. And it's really severe disease that we're, we're trying to prevent, uh, especially in patients with pulmonary fibrosis. So getting your vaccines, getting your boosters would still be very advisable. Do they have to stop their immunologic treatments in planning out their immunizations? Yeah, it's a great question. So the, the main one to be aware of is rituximab. So there are specific rules um, on when you should be getting your COVID vaccine in relation to your rituximab dosing. Um, there are different, um, different recommendations from different groups, but generally speaking, you wanna get it about a month before a rituximab dose. Um, usually that ends up being five months after your previous one and one month before your next one, because uh, usually it's given every six months. Um, and we try to time the, the COVID doses uh, to be right in that window. Uh, COVID vaccines are probably less effective as well if you're on higher doses of prednisone. So if you're on more than 10 milligrams a day of prednisone, it's probably not as effective. Uh, and if you're on higher doses of mycophenolate or cyclophosphamide or others, it's probably not quite as effective either, but we generally don't worry too much about the timing of, of the vaccine in those situations. It's really the rituximab that we care most about. Okay, great. Thank you. And so I assume that scleroderma patients are probably those who are eligible for boosters uh, nowadays. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Even the fourth dose, uh, I suspect uh, most would be eligible now. Okay, well, I think we're close to wrapping up here. Is there any other things or points that you guys would like to emphasize or feel that we haven't had a chance to touch upon? Uh, I'll maybe start with one quick thing um, and uh, um, mostly targeted at patients and, and potential patients with scleroderma. It is a rare disease. So there are a lot of doctors out there that probably only have one or two patients in their entire practice with scleroderma. So if you are, are worried about that, it's never a bad idea to ask for a referral to a center that, that sees a lot more of these patients. Um, so don't, don't hesitate to ask for that referral. Jen, is there any other parting words of wisdom you'd like to share on to the community? Uh, I would just say, um, you know, uh, add to what uh, Dr. Ryerson said, as a person living with scleroderma, there are often times where, um, you know, like Dr. Ryerson said, doctors just don't know enough about it. And I always carry all my information with me on my phone. 
So when I have to go to the hospital or something happens, all my medications and my symptoms can just pop up. And it really, it really helps the doctors to kind of uh, have a better understanding of what's happening for scleroderma patients. Okay, well, we'll wrap up here. I want to thank both of you so, so much for coming on today and sharing your wisdom and your personal experience, Jen, with, with this disease has been super informative for, you know, my medical student peers and also patients who will be listening. So thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Please note that the opinions expressed on the Scleroderma Education Podcast are for educational purposes only and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice. Please consult with your own healthcare provider if you have any concerns about your health.